Human history, like a river, will keep moving forward with moments of both calm waters and huge waves. We have before us the opportunity to forge a new world order. This is multipolarity, charting the rise of the new multipolar world order. Coming up this week, most people have never heard of Guyana. Many think it's in Africa, but Venezuelans know their CIA world factbook inside out. They've long claimed that its western regions are rightfully theirs, and now that the Guyanese have struck oil, the Maduro regime wants to take those areas by conquest. The question isn't, can Venezuela, population 30 million, knock over Guyana, population 790,000? With the West presently preoccupied on two other continents, it's who's going to stop them? This week, the world's biggest oil producers announced they'd be sharply cutting back on production, and the oil price fell. There's something screwy going on in the market, but who exactly has the power to manipulate the world's biggest, most internationalized market? Finally, this week in Middle East Corner, we've got yet another round of damaged ships. But first... Team South America. This week, we have rumblings that another war might be on the cards to add to the one in the Donbass and the one in uh, Israel-Palestine. The Guyanese territory of Essequibo, which is uh, 160,000 square kilometers, it's actually two-thirds of Guyana's territory, although it only accounts for uh, less than a quarter of their population, um, is a disputed territory between Venezuela and Guyana. And it's actually been disputed since Venezuela gained independence from Spain in 1821. As long ago as a century and a quarter ago, in 1899, uh, an international arbitration tribunal found in Guyana's favour, but Venezuela has always rejected the 1899 Paris Tribunal because Venezuela wasn't represented at the tribunal. Uh, Guyana at the time was a British colony and uh, Britain had two representatives, whereas Venezuela was represented by two Americans. Instead, Venezuela has uh, emphasized a 1966 agreement with Britain, which at the time was still the uh, colonial overlord of Guyana, which agreed to uh, settle the dispute through mediation. But this is all very old. I mean, 1966 was um, 60 years ago, and uh, you know the International Tribunal was 124. So what's changed now? What's brought us ever closer to war? The answer to that is that in 2015, Uh, A huge oil deposit was discovered in the maritime territory of Guyana, and specifically in what would be the maritime territory of of, uh, Esequibo. Uh, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, Esequibo. And essentially, uh, ExxonMobil has led a consortium to exploit the deposit, and they're already pumping 400,000 barrels a day from this deposit. Guyana's GDP has tripled in size because of this in just the uh, three years between 2020 and 2022. That gives you an idea of the scale of this. 
The problem is that ExxonMobil's involvement, and it's not just them, there are two Chinese oil companies involved as well, lest people think that this is an all-American affair. Uh, but ExxonMobil's majority position in this consortium is drawing in the U.S. military. And, you know, obviously one of the one of the key roles of the U.S. military is to protect U.S. interests abroad. And quite often that means it's trading interests, it's business interests, it's 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 it's, it's concessions to uh, exploit natural resources. And so the uh, U.S. military is uh, being drawn ever uh, closer in in 2020. The two countries uh, signed an agreement uh, on defense. And indeed, as recently as a couple of weeks ago, the U.S. First Security Force Assistance Brigade and the Guyana Defense Force met, furthered the military cooperation, made agreements to continue that military cooperation. Obviously, because Venezuela disputes this territory, it feels uh, rather chagrined to have the U.S. Uh, having a military presence there. So this week, uh, Venezuela held a referendum that asked several questions related to the Esequibo affair, essentially saying, do you, the Venezuelan people, agree with us that Esequibo is ours and that we shouldn't allow Guyana to uh, administer it and have you know, U.S. military in this region? And uh, the referendum returned a 95% result in favour of the Venezuelan government's position. Uh, the Venezuelan government has also uh, complained to the uh, United Nations about the US uh, cooperating with Guyana and stationing troops in Guyana and patrolling Guyanese waters. Uh, so increasingly, it looks as though uh, the Venezuelans, now that not only is the oil and not only is oil being pumped, but the, but the US military is getting involved uh, in the region, they're increasingly uh, they're showing an increasing amount of urgency, shall we say, to wrest back the Essequibo region from Guyana. And of course, in the current febrile global environment, the, the febrile government global atmosphere, shall we say, there are concerns that this could indeed lead to war, which is the last thing I think anybody wants. But Certainly, it seems yet another global flashpoint to add to the myriad of global flashpoints that there already is. Yeah, right. Um, I guess I'm old enough to remember when the uh, Bolivarian revolutionary state would say things like no blood for oil. But I guess uh, I guess that's out the window when the uh, oil is off your shore and there's an awful lot of it. Um, it's, it's, it's a more arcane... Um, situation than I think we're used to on multipolarity. I mean, much of what you've outlined there, I had no idea of the history. Um, I'm sure many listeners don't either. Um, so it might be helpful to just get a very broad kind of, um, you know, CIA fact book kind of <laughs> overview of what we're dealing with here. I, I mean, we get all um, our facts from the CIA, Philip, just so our listeners know. <laughs> so <laughs> that's yeah. right. It's my favorite fact yeah. book. So Venezuela, probably people are more familiar with, it's got a population of close to 30 million people. Guyana uh, has a population of 790,000 people. So it's not only a small country, it's a tiny country. And I think that is uh, kind of reflected in its military strength. So the uh, Venezuelan army, um, I'm just going to note the motto here, it's Forger of Liberties, 
uh, doesn't uh, include anything about oil. Um, its size is 115,000 people, which is actually not an enormous army for such a for such a large country, but 115,000 people, uh, no less. The Guyana army is, uh, they don't even have proper figures on it, um, but it looks like they might have 4,600 personnel, maybe 3,000 in reserve. And when you look at the list of equipment, it's really no comparison, as you can imagine, with those relative sizes. Perhaps uh, Guyana's got very rich in the past three years, but it hasn't had time to spend its wealth on guns. It basically has a bunch of small arms, from what I can tell, maybe some mortars or something. I mean, I, I'm looking through a list of their vehicles, and they actually uh, list uh, pickup trucks as one of their military vehicles, so that's never a good look. The Venezuelan army, again, not really comparable to a country of its size in, say, the Middle East, but it's got 81 AMX 30V French main battle tanks. It's got 92 T-72s, Russian Soviet tanks. Got a bunch of light tanks from France. It's even got some British light tanks. Not sure where they got them. Got some uh, infantry fighting vehicles, Russian, mainly Russian in arm. Uh, in origin, it looks like they've been using some of the royal money since the Great Revolution to buy up Russian military gear in the great revolutionary tradition of buying up Russian military gear when a revolution takes place. They also have a lot of French stuff. Some of it looks pretty recent, I'd say, armored personnel carriers and stuff. Some pretty sophisticated service-to-air missiles. Uh, Looks like they're probably stepping up. I mean, they have an S-300 system from Russia. They have um, two of them. So I guess they were buying, even though their army isn't enormous relative to their population, I guess the, the the breakdown of what they were buying looks like they were preparing for a potential intervention by America, would be my guess. Um, and of course, that was a realistic fear in the early 2000s when it was put on the uh, axis of evil list, uh, along with North Korea and Iran and so on. And, and you know, there was a, a soft commitment by the Bush administration to go after all these countries. So, I mean, what I take from that is that you've got a tiny, teeny, teeny country with a pretty much non-existent military and a very large country, actually, or at least a large country. Um, I'd say large, actually, large, not very large. Um, with a, a sizable enough military, not hugely impressive for its size, um, but pretty well equipped, I think would be fair to say. So, um, I mean, I, I think you have a better sense of the situation than me, but it looks to me like, you know, if Venezuela want to spread the Great Revolution to part of Guyana um, with nothing to do with seizing the oil reserves, um, I mean, they can do it in a heartbeat, right? Um, I'm not sure. So I'm not sure it's particularly clear because as far as I understand, topographically, that area of Guyana, and it is, you know, two thirds of the entire country. It's not a small area. I mean, it's it's in in old money, about 62,000 square miles. I mean, that's a... That's a fair old chunk of real estate. Um, and it's also, you know, a jungle, <laughs> a lot of it, as far as I understand. So it doesn't seem like the most forgiving of areas to easily invade. Certainly those British light tanks aren't going to find it easy going. They're not, you know, they're not going to be surging across the North European plain or across the North African desert or anything like that. I think the more important point to uh, consider here, you know, before we consider the outcome of war, because 
you know, if they do want to seize the oil, they've got to seize the maritime territory as well, which is another matter indeed, especially given that it's on the uh, southern shores of the Caribbean, which, you know, the U.S. will see as a, is, uh, you know, the core of the core of U.S. strategic interests in the Caribbean. Um, I, you know, I think the more, more important point to consider here is it, it's a kind of a classic example of how disputes like this can end up in war. Uh, you know, we've seen one over the last couple of years uh, of a similar nature, though widely unacknowledged, you know, among the uh, media. Uh, but this one similarly, it's not simply a case, I think, of Venezuela wanting oil. I mean, you know, the Venezuelans have loads of oil themselves. Uh, it, you know, it's not like they, you know, it's not like they're resource poor, and they're desperately trying to get the get their mucky paws on some oil. I think the more important point here is that they've long seen um, the region as Venezuela. I mean, they've claimed it since eighteen twenty one, and um, since then uh, they've been trying to get it back essentially from Guyana. Uh, they rejected the eighteen ninety nine uh, Paris Tribunal, um, and they still. Uh, hold out hope uh, for reconciliation or mediation through the 1966 uh, treaty with uh, or agreement with Britain. Uh, the problem is, of course, you know, as I said earlier on, now that there is oil and now that U.S. companies are exploiting it, and now, frankly, that the U.S. and the Western world needs more oil, given they have excluded to a certain degree legally, de you know, de jure if not de facto. Russian oil from the Western system, um, you know, the U.S. needs to defend those interests, which is, you know, perfectly understandable. Um, equally understandable, though, is that Venezuela would see, you know, the the big fist of the U.S. military suddenly, uh, you know, gaining a footprint, gaining a, a, a foothold in the region and defending the region as a clear threat to their ability to or their leverage to secure uh, territory that they see as their own through mediation. You know, what chance do they have now that, you, you know, one of the, the most powerful corporations in the world, backed by the power of the U.S. military, is exploiting oil in that territory and exploiting oil, as far as I understand, under extremely favorable terms to ExxonMobil. Slightly less favorable to Guyana, apparently. I, I'm not expert enough to know this. So the Venezuelans probably say, so, well, well, what chance do we have? And, and, and the more the U.S. gets involved, the more the U.S. deepens its military cooperation with Guyana, the less and less chance we've ever got to deal with this. On the other side of the ledger, because the U.S. has sanctioned Venezuela really heavily for like, you know, 15 years or however long ago it was that the Bolivarian revolution took root. Um, what does Venezuela really have to lose? Like, oh, they can, uh, you know, the only way they can really lose, as you say, given the military balance of power, is if the US comes down on the side of Guyana. They, you know, they can't really lose by further sanctions. I mean, what further sanctions can they impose? It's like the North Koreans are allegedly supplying weapons to the Russians. Well, oh, maybe we could punish the North Koreans by sanctioning them. Well, no, the sanctions are already there. So on one side, you've got increasing concern 
that the U.S. is essentially uh, precluding any mediation that would give Venezuela any hope of reclaiming territory that for over 200 years it has seen as its own. Uh, on the other side of the ledger, you've got the fact that, you know, really, apart from actually physically getting involved itself, there's very little that the U.S. can do in terms of economic san sanctions to dissuade the Venezuelans. Uh, and finally, of course, you know, the Venezuelans might be looking at this and saying, the U.S. has spent two years getting involved on the Pontic step on Europe's east eastern approaches, sending loads of weaponry, getting its, you know, scraping the bottom of the barrel in terms of what they can send without uh, affecting uh, America's own ability to fight a war. Then they've had the Israeli situation, which they've had to undertake in really quite significant emergency munitions supplies to Israel as well. Well, maybe if we're going to do this, and we want to uh, minimize the risks of U.S. interference, maybe this would be the ideal time, especially with the U.S. distracted about China. Maybe the U.S. would cut its losses in this sense. All of these things are working together. And I think it's a, it, you know, it's a great example of the sort of uh, things that can flare up when countries, when the leading powers within the region, the you know the powers who who who, who use their use the kind of the big fist to settle disputes in their region, whether it be say Russia and the Caucasus with Armenia and Azerbaijan, or whether it be in this case um, uh, the United States in the in the South Caribbean area. When the cat's away, the mice tend to play. And, and, and now that the U.S. has been getting involved in all sorts of conflicts that are strategically non-core, shall we say, now we start getting the potential for small conflicts in a really a very much core region. And the, the potential for that has increased because it might be seen that the U.S. has weakened itself somewhat, or at least weakened its ability to want to go fight a small war against a country like Venezuela. I think you're absolutely right about the uh, distraction, the overstretching of the American military might. I mean, that is clearly uh, top of the table here. On the sanctions, actually, I, I, I think some recent news uh, would shine a slightly different interpretation on that. Actually, quite quietly, um, in mid-October, the U.S. Uh, gave, a, I think, basically a six-month moratorium on the sanctions. It eased them. Um, the reason it was giving was because they reached the Biden administration, uh, reached a deal with the Maduras uh, regime, I guess they'd call it, um, and uh, on on electoral reforms. Now, were real electoral reforms put in place in Venezuela? Seriously doubtful. But the U.S. Uh, Treasury Department uh, issued uh, a license authorizing Venezuela, um, which has been really heavily sanctioned since the Trump administration in 2019, to produce and export oil to its chosen markets for the next six months without limitation. Now, why did they really do this? It, it probably wasn't about electoral reform. It was actually, I think, because the U.S. had lost control over the global oil market. With, this, with the situation around Saudi Arabia that we've talked about quite a lot. 
And they saw um, it was a very multipolar thing to do, actually, on the part of the Biden administration. They basically looked at Venezuela and said, OK, we've had our differences in the past, but, you know, the, the Venezuelan state probably doesn't actually pose a security risk to the United States in any meaningful sense. And so, you know, we'll just re- reach this deal and we'll import some of this Venezuelan oil. Well, I think the news reports from that were that I'm looking at were from October 18th. Uh, so less than two months later, uh, Venezuela are considering invading a, a country next door. So obviously, um, what we can take from that is Venezuela uh, feels like, uh, to use a, a pun, perhaps, that they really have the United States over a barrel. Um, they not only see the United States overstretched, but they know that the U.S. is pretty desperate for the oil right now. And if they, you know, if the U.S. want to intervene on the Guyana situation, um, that oil probably won't flow. So it, really interesting situation. It's it's a sort of a, in, in a sense, when you zoom back, it's like the perfect multiplicity. Yeah, story and, and don't forget, not only will the Venezuelan oil not flow in theory, uh, but the Guyanese oil won't flow either if there's a war. So it really does seem that there's a big incentive at the moment to settle this somehow through mediation. Uh, but this referendum, uh, and in fact, the International Court has said that uh, has condemned the Venezuelans for doing this. So we are already seeing escalations here. And it is something that can, uh, you know, affect, okay, it's not like cutting off Russia from the world or, you know, it's not like it would be cutting off the Saudis or, or, or whoever. But, um, you know, nobody wants to see yet more oil taken out of the global system. You know, we've already got Iran. Um, you know, we've already had Venezuela. There are already disruptions because of the uh, conflict in Ukraine and the various uh, Western responses to that. And now we perhaps have, you know, Venezuela and Guyana as well. Uh, that's a really shaky position indeed. And, uh, you know, I don't think anybody wants that. So, um, as I say, you know, it might be the Maduro uh, government you know, seeing a great opportunity to uh, push further for uh, some kind of mediation. But it might also be them panicking a little bit that uh, outside forces are getting involved that are now tipping the balance against Venezuela. Um, Who knows? But as you say, it is the perfect multipolar story. It is also a story of what happens when a leading power fails to pick and choose where it intervenes, uh, fails to take account of what happens, and when its power starts to recede somewhat, uh, whenever uh, power recedes, uh, outside, you know, internal forces within uh, the footprint of that former power start competing over what's left. Uh, and I think that this is yet another example of conflicts of the like we will probably see over the coming decade or so uh, as the world shifts from a unipolar into a multipolar world system. Printing oil. I think it's worth kind of prefacing the commentary intro here. Uh, Just for people who don't know about the oil market, I'll give kind of a personal anecdote. When I first started working in finance, um, I was trying to figure out what determined prices in various markets. And I remember asking uh, a pretty seasoned watcher of the oil markets, what should I look at? 
how should I view the oil markets? You know, and I expected him to come back and say, well, you need to look at the supply and demand for oil and you need to do this, this and this. But he didn't say that. He said to me, um, just listen to what the Saudis are doing. Whatever the Saudis are doing is probably going to happen. Uh, not precisely, but directionally. And I have found that that's been pretty good advice. When the Saudis say that they're going to push the uh, price of oil up, they usually end up pushing the price of oil up. And uh, when they say that it's going down, it usually goes down. Now, outside of recessions, recessions are obviously a, an exogenous event, as economists would say. And they shock the market in such a way that big producers like Saudi and Saudi Arabia and Russia lose control. Big swing producers, I should say. And just very quickly on that, a swing producer is important because Saudi Arabia, um, if you compare Saudi Arabian production to the United States, um, the United States, I believe, it has actually does produce more. But the United States produces this oil and it's an enormous market that absorbs the oil. Saudi Arabia is an enormous oil producer, but it's, a, it's actually, in effect, a kind of small country that doesn't use that much oil. And in that sense, it's the swing producer and it tends to impact the price. So the economics of it makes sense. So why does that matter? Well, I'd seen that the price of oil was behaving a little bit funny for a while. Um, and a news story crossed my eye um, a few weeks ago on the price of oil. And in it, the, um, the Saudi energy minister, who I believe is the brother-in-law of uh, Mohammed bin Salman, uh, the crown prince, um, said in the article that the, um, the oil price was completely out of whack. And that it wasn't behaving normally. And that he thought um, that speculators were driving the price down. Now, if you, again, if you've ever worked in financial markets, people who uh, blame speculators for everything. When a trade isn't going their way or, or anything like that, they'll usually blame the nefarious speculator. And often this is just, um, as the kids will call it, a cope. But um, occasionally it's true, and I thought I knew a, I knew enough about the Saudi energy minister to know that he's a pretty serious and measured guy, um, and not prone to hysterics. That's kind of why they probably chose him as the energy minister. And so I kept an eye on the market, and it did seem like it was behaving strange because basically um, OPEC plus, led by Saudi Arabia and Russia, who are the two largest members. Um, are saying that they're cutting oil massively, and and they they were originally saying that they were they were setting a price target of up to a hundred dollars a barrel, and um, nothing. So that's the supply side. On the demand side, nothing particularly interesting was happening. Um, this is a whole other debate, but if if listeners will just take it at reasonable face value, um. I'm not particularly uh, bullish on many Western economies right now. Um, they have a lot of problems. Um, and I think they will go into recession in the coming year or so, maybe two. But there is no sign of imminent recession, like immediate in the next quarter recession, except maybe in the United Kingdom and maybe in Germany um, and some of the Central European countries. But e even, even in those ones, they're very initial signals. The UK could already be in recession. But the United States is not in recession. It's just had a record, 20-year um, uh, record quarter of growth driven by the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, China is meeting its growth targets. Good PMI numbers came out on the day of recording currently. So the supply gets cut by OPEC in the face of, I would say, fairly stable demand, at least for now. And yet the price is falling. 
And as the Saudi energy minister says, this is very strange. So I've been watching this for a while. I commented on it a few times on Twitter. Um, and then I realized that there was a, a Saudi energy meeting coming up. At the time of recording, it was um, last week on Thursday. And it was actually delayed. It was supposed to be on Sunday. But I said, I'm going to watch that meeting and I'm going to see what happens. And the, the market, the uh, media was saying that OPEC were basically going to fall into a tiffle and disagree with each other and not get any production cuts done. And I have my reasons to doubt that, uh, that narrative. Anyway, they come out and they make additional cuts. They massively increase the cuts that they're doing. Now, knowing the expectations baked in, right, and, and knowing the supply and demand situation, it, it should have been pretty obvious at that stage that all of the narratives around the meeting were wrong and the price of oil should have gone up because there was a large supply, a larger than expected supply cut. But lo and behold, the price went through the floor. It was very, very strange. And it did so immediately after the meeting. And the media really were left um, scrambling for narratives. Um, they do have some narratives. I think they're pretty silly. They're about credibility, this usual kind of, you know, um, navel gazing by the media, like, oh, you didn't communicate it properly because we're communicators and that's what we do. Communication means nothing in the oil markets. It's how much black stuff comes out of the ground and how much black stuff needs to be bought. That's that's all that matters. Um, so, so then a day later, to finish this slightly long story, um, the Bloomberg uh, comes out with a very interesting piece on uh, algorithmic trading in the oil market. Um, Bloomberg present data from a private company that tracks this, showing that algorithmic trading in the U.S. oil market spiked in 2023. And a separate Bloomberg article showed that just prior to the meeting, the, the, the OPEC meeting, hedge funds put on a load of short positions. So what you will glean from this, and perhaps we can discuss it more, is that the uh, hedge funds and the algorithm traders are following each other. That's the most likely explanation. The algorithmic traders are, are, are going into the market in enormous volumes, and the hedge funds are doing uh, short sales of oil futures in order to hammer down that short so that it triggers the algorithms, which follow trends, and then it collapses even more. You can almost think of it as like a short trade that's like punching through algorithmic resistances and driving the price of oil down. But it's very strange. It's very strange. And perhaps we can talk about it more, but it, it will have real economic impacts because mispricing oil is a pretty dangerous game. I'm often a little bit skeptical about market movements. Uh, you know, I often think that, you know, whether it's equities or bonds or certainly commodities, I'm almost skeptical that day-to-day, week-to-week, or even month-to-month movements have much uh, relation to fundamentals. And when they do, it tends to be sudden snapbacks or uh, bounces or whatever as they suddenly realize that they've mispriced something. You know, I, I tend to think it's a fool's errand trying to divine from futures markets or, or equities markets, you, you know, exactly the health of an underlying economy or an underlying commodity. I had a little bit of a look at this and and, and, and two things sprung to mind. The first was that, uh, you know, somebody outside the OPEC plus organization, i.e. the US, might be pumping a hell of a lot more oil out of the ground. 
Um, a second assumption was that you know people were taking short positions, and it was becoming a self-fulfilling prophecy. In that you know the more short positions were undertaken, uh, the more the price was uh, falling. Just to let people know, short is um, you know when people essentially bet on the value of something falling. So if you short Apple shares, for example, or if you short uh the british pound for example you're essentially betting on that the you know shares in apple or shares in or, or the british pound itself falling in value and because of the mechanism that short contracts uh, work that can sometimes in and of itself force the price down and as people you know shorter market other people might think aha everybody thinks it's going to fall i should start betting against or i should sell or whatever so on the first one on more pumping i you know i will say that you know the us is pumping almost record uh record amounts of oil um uh, despite the biden administration's rhetoric about uh, going green uh, they are in fact uh pumping uh more oil uh than ever uh, i think uh, it, you know it's something like 13 and a half million barrels a day at the moment uh, which is you know higher than the previous peak, which itself represented a pretty big surge after the shale revolution. Um, so you know there's that potentially. Um, I, you know I know it's been said before that because of the nature of uh, shale oil drilling and, uh, and fracking, um, it, you know it's something that you can turn off and on a little bit more easily than traditional pumping, uh, despite it being more expensive to do. Uh, and therefore, it, it essentially makes it easier to be a swing producer. And because the U.S. is pumping so much these days, um, you know, a lot of people see the U.S. rather than the Saudis as the swing producer these days. So perhaps there's that. The other point is, uh, you know, I checked on the um, on the NYMEX, the uh, you know the major index uh, through which uh, oil futures are traded. And the net short positions are indeed, you know, pretty high at the moment. Um, the net short positions are 171% higher than they were this time last year. There's been a significant increase in uh, net short positions. So, yeah, they also might be driving the market as well. At the same time, though, it is still uh, highly unusual that um, – you know, both Russia and Saudi Arabia could, in lockstep, announce production cuts and the price of all continue oil continue falling outside a recession. Obviously, if there's a recession, uh, demand for oil declines, and therefore the price of oil declines given stable supply. Uh, but we're not in recession. Uh, the The U.S. economy is, in fact, growing robustly. Uh, Europe is, of course, stagnating. Uh, China isn't seeing the kind of you know. Uh, Lollapalooza uh, growth that it experienced, uh, you know, pre twenty twenty one, but it is still growing at what five five and a half percent a year GDP. Um, so you know the demand for oil should be still pretty high. One would have thought China and uh, sorry, uh, Russia and Saudi Arabia have announced cuts, uh, and yet the price of oil is is falling. Is it the algorithms? Is it the net short positions? Is it just that the U.S. is 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 pumping? I don't know, but it would seem that the bottom line is this: if the Saudis and the Russians are determined to see oil hit a hundred dollars a barrel and stay there, 
then they can just keep cutting production until it damn well gets there. And eventually they're going to, one would imagine they're going to, you know, find victory against short sellers or against, you know, short term algorithmic, uh, algorithmic uh, trading uh, platforms that, you know, they, they, they probably even can overwhelm uh, us production as well. So, I mean, you'll know better than me, Philip, but you know, while I'm skeptical about playing too much into this, um, if the market suddenly realizes, ah, they're just going to cut and cut and cut and cut. Uh, my guess is that there would be a really serious uh, bounce back in the price of oil indeed. I mean, the oil market can be really violent in its price swings, right? Yeah, I mean, I'd say on the American production first, um, on the supply side, uh, the oil the oil market, because it's basically controlled by a cartel, uh, isn't actually really rocket science. It's, it's, it's actually basic arithmetic. Uh, US production... Numbers are up, you're correct. And the latest number we have um, from November, uh, well, it's November numbers, I think it's uh, September, October, is that US production is up 224,000 barrels a day. But OPEC are committing to cutting uh, 2.2 million, 10 times that. And not only is that kind of the empirical fact of the supply currently, but it also gives a sense of the magnitude. They can easily cut 10 times more then the U.S. can produce at the margin. And this goes some way to showing why the U.S., I would argue, is just simply not a swing producer. It's a large producer with a large domestic uh, market that can occasionally turn, turn up the volume and extract harder to extract oil. But the reality is the U.S. Is, is in a not a desperate state for energy or anything, but the Biden administration has been trying desperately to flood the market. It's, it's emptied its uh, strategic petroleum reserves. Um, which has become a hot button political topic in the United States. So I really don't think it's it's the U.S. and I don't think the U.S. has the supply capacity to overwhelm the market. And actually, it ties into something we discussed in the last segment, which is that you know the U.S. went in October, all hands on deck, and made a deal with Venezuela. I mean, that's that's how things were looking in the oil market at the time. That's why this decline in prices has been so um, unusual. I just say two further things. First of all, the Saudis have picked a fight with the press recently, the uh, Western financial press. They were annoyed at what they thought to be misreporting, and they didn't allow the press in. So that's actually soured relationships with the press and may actually account for a lot of negative headlines that are currently taking place. Bloomberg did an article with the energy minister, which I watched, and uh, it looked to me like the energy minister was trying to make... uh, re, uh, you know, reestablish good relations with the press. But the energy minister was very dismissive of the whole thing. He said that um, he said that the whole thing was an embarrassment and the market was mispricing, and it was going to be taught a harsh lesson. And he seemed pretty confident. And as you say, they can keep cutting if they want. The last thing, and I guess the most important, is why does it matter? I mean, people. Well, first of all, people would say, "Who cares? Markets bounce around all the time." And then maybe secondly, people would say, "Well." It's good that the price of oil is coming down. Don't we want the price of oil to come down? And if the speculators can play Robin Hood and get the price of oil down for the you know for the regular guy in the street, then why is that a bad thing? Well, the, it's a bad thing if it's mispriced because if oil is mispriced on the downside, substantially mispriced, and we could be talking about up to twenty dollars a barrel here, you know, and it's currently sitting at about seventy four, uh, you know, fifteen twenty dollars a barrel. There could be that much mispricing at the moment, um, and what that'll do is it'll encourage people to party as if there's no tomorrow. It'll encourage people to buy oil 
at a rate that's not commensurate with the supply. And of course, you know, what will then happen is as the as the increased demand hits the reduced supply, at a certain point, the market will go, oh, no, there isn't as much oil here as we were pricing in. And then, as you've alluded to, the price will shoot up. And that could prove to be very, very uh, disruptive. And I'm not going to put a timeline on that. What we've said is, again, to use a pun, quite speculative, but I think there's something here that's worth watching. Wouldn't want to put a timeline on it. But how long can paper markets beat out the physical reality of the oil market? I, I don't think we're talking months here. Let's just put it that way. But even a couple of weeks of overconsumption could make a serious long-term difference in the, in, the, in the actual price of oil, if we want to put it that way. GTA Jihadi. So once again, we're going to discuss um, happenings in Israel. Uh, sadly, this week, we're once again talking about ships. And as we suggested last week, escalation has happened not to uh, war, not to bringing outside power in, but we have definitely stepped up a rung on the escalation ladder. Last week, as people will remember, uh, we spoke about uh, the US uh, getting involved in wresting back a ship that the Houthis had taken over. Uh, Both Philip and I suggested that this um, hinted that indeed escalation could happen and in fact, uh, that's exactly what's happened this week. Two uh, Israeli-linked ships in the Red Sea were attacked by Houthi missiles. A U.S. Navy Ali Burke-class missile destroyer uh, engaged these missiles, or perhaps drones. Um, details are sketchy at the moment. Um, and in fact, destroyed some. Early reports suggested that the U.S. Uh, destroyer itself came under attack, but later reports said that it simply defended the two ships. There have been no reports of damage to um, the uh, Ali Burke-class destroyer. However, my fear is, and I'm sure yours too, Philip Pilkington, is how long can this go on before there is damage to an Ali Burke-class destroyer? Not necessarily saying that a Houthi drone could sink one or, or, or missile, although that is possible, but if one does manage to leak through the ship's defense systems, which is, of course, possible as anybody who's followed any kind of naval action in any war in the last you know, 30, 40 years will tell you it is very much possible. See the Falklands, see the Black Sea, see the Eastern Mediterranean. What will happen if U.S. service personnel and the destroyer are killed? Uh, touch wood, they won't be, but what will happen if they will be? What happens if a destroyer is uh, damaged at all or even sunk? Surely at that stage, the pressure on uh, the Biden administration will become overwhelming and they'll simply have to intervene in this conflict. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, week by week, it just keeps escalating. We've kind of of alluded to this before that um, I don't think that the Houthis or anybody else wants to immediately escalate to the maximum volume. You know, at the start of the war, I think everyone who was watching it thought, you know, is this the big one? Are Hezbollah just going to go in the north and the whole thing's going to kick off in this incredibly ugly way? Not unlike what we saw less than two years ago in Ukraine. Um, that hasn't proved to be the case. And it's clearly, um, it's become clear now that the, the escalations are strategic in nature. Um, but 
that doesn't mean that they can't get out of hand. That's the whole kind of point of strategic escalation in a way. Um, and every week, or it's it's not even every week now, it's every couple of days, these strikes on naval targets get a little bit spicier. You know, one week it's kind of, it's just the Houthis landing on a commercial vessel and taking it over. The next week we have uh, a, a similar action, the US Navy intervening and missiles being shot across the bow of the ship as a warning. And now we've had a slightly even more escalatory move by the Houthis. So I think um, I think people can people who understand these things will get the message. This is going to keep escalating until some sort of resolution is found in the Middle Eastern conflict. Fresh from a huge victory. 